like Steve Johnson, our treasurer, was telling me I need to sacrifice my donut money for the air conditioning. <laughs> Felt like it was a subtle, not so subtle hint. <clears throat> okay, God's going to provide me with both this month. <laughs> I'm believing it by faith. <laughs> All right. Uh, this month, church, we're emphasizing smaller gatherings as a way for you to connect in community and relationship and discipleship with other people here at Crestmont. We have a new display out in the foyer. And you can see all of our current smaller gatherings, and we encourage you to connect to one of those if possible. I gave you two words last week. One is join, and the other is invite. So if you're not connected to a smaller gathering than this one, I want to encourage you to join one. Um, there's contact information if you need help processing which group to join. Um, and if you're already in one, I want to encourage you to invite. I said it last week, but I'd love it if when new people came into the church... Um, they got several invitations to a smaller gathering from people in this church. So I want to encourage you to be proactive in that. Well, today is actually the last uh, series, the last sermon in our Easter series. We've done six Easter sermons, including Easter Sunday. We've done five, rather. The sixth will be today. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 21, to the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And turn there in your Bibles or on your phone. It'll be on the screen behind me. This passage involves Jesus gently and lovingly restoring Peter after his great failure. So Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. Probably many of you know that. Most of you know that. Jesus had called Peter from his humble post as a fisherman by the Sea of Galilee. Peter himself was probably living in poverty in that vocation um, and moved Peter out of that uh, into discipleship with Jesus. And one thing we recognize about Peter is even if it's misguided sometimes, he is filled with zeal for Jesus Sometimes he doesn't know what to do with that, and he seems to be quick to say things. He's one of the more vocal disciples in the Gospels. But he has the zeal that is genuine, even though sometimes it's misguided. But at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Peter goes through um, or commits the largest probably failure of his lifetime in that he had promised Jesus, he had told Jesus that he would stick with Jesus to the end even to the point of death. But that's not what happened. When Jesus got arrested, Peter kind of makes a clumsy attempt to save Jesus by pulling out a sword and cutting off a guy's ear. Jesus says, that's, we're not going to cut off ears. That's not the way to handle it. So he heals, heals the guy who took the wound. And then Peter, that night, um, just like Jesus told him would happen, uh, denies Jesus, who he had told he would never leave him, denied him three times while Jesus is in his most critical hour. One of the Gospels tells us that at that point, Peter recognized his failure and ran away weeping bitterly because he realized he had failed the Lord. It's like his intentions were there, but he didn't have the power to follow through with it. Well, in John chapter 21, we're already at Jesus's, uh, this is after Jesus has, has been resurrected. This is one of his resurrection appearances to his disciples, and uh, this is such a tender passage because here Jesus restores Peter. So we're going to read John 1, verses 1 to 19. I'm not going to ask you, I'm sorry, 21, 1 to 19. 
I'm not going to ask you to stand, and I may give some commentary as we read through this together, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, in John's gospel, there's several times where there's this reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, we think it's John himself, which what a tender thing that that's how he chooses to refer to himself. You know, his identity was so wrapped up in the love of Jesus. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I'll just point out here, just so you can picture this, at this point, Jesus is in this one-on-one -on -one conversation with Peter, and so it's right for us to kind of picture that they're all having breakfast together, and Jesus somehow pulls Peter aside. It's like, walk with me for a minute, and they have this talk. So when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself you dressed yourself and went my eyes. <laughs> Sorry. You went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Amazing passage. Peter denies Jesus uh, three times and then he affirms Jesus' love. Uh, his love for Jesus three times. Peter, Jesus gives him the opportunity to do that. Well, my main point this morning is that Jesus meets our hunger and humility with restored identity and expanded assignments. Jesus meets our hunger and our humility with restored identity and expanded assignments. So first I want to talk about Peter and hunger and humility in Peter in this passage, and then I want to talk about how Jesus responds to Peter's hunger and humility 
with restored identity and expanded assignments. And I have a lot of scripture I want to give you today, so I'm going to try to stay closer to my notes so I can get all of this in. Um, first of all, Peter's hunger. Um, I see Peter's hunger in this passage for the Lord mainly because he jumps into the water. <laughs> you see kind of this unrestrained desire just to get near Jesus. You know, so as soon as Peter hears John say that the guy standing on the shore talking to them is the Lord, he wraps his outer garment around them. Peter, as was customary in the day, had probably been fishing in just some kind of undergarment, but he wraps himself in a garment because um, it's an act of reverence. He recognizes that if this is the Lord, it's the Lord, and, and this person deserves reverence, and so this is why and customary to his day, he actually puts on clothes before he jumps in the water. You know, it's like, why, does, why did he have to put on clothes to jump in the water? Well, that's why. It's actually an act of worship. So he puts on his outer garment, jumps in, and he just has to get to Jesus. And I love this hunger that Peter expresses for the Lord. You know, hunger, ultimately, hunger for the Lord isn't expressed in just an emotional feeling. Emotions will come and go. It's superficial to think that we're always going to feel what we identify as emotional hunger for the Lord. Nor is it identified by the things that we say all the time, right? Because we can say we're hungry, but in reality not be hungry. Ultimately, it is in our actions that we are always consciously or subconsciously demonstrating what we are actually hungry for in this life, right? It's always by what we do that we demonstrate what we're hungry for and what we're not hungry for. Let me give you an example. Sometimes I sit on the couch, and my wife and I are watching TV, and she, has a, she sits in a chair across. We always sit in the same places. She sits in this chair. I sit on the couch, and we're watching TV, and I might look over to Chelsea and say, wow, I'm hungry. I'm thinking about those leftovers, you know, in the fridge. But I don't feel like getting up. You know what I mean? I'm half mentioning it. I know better than to ask her to get it for me, <laughs> you know? But I'm, but I'm half hoping that if she so happens to get up, you know, out of her chair and happens to pass the fridge, she might happen to get the food out, you know, that I want and bring it to me. It never happens, you know? <laughs> but I hope that maybe this will happen. And I might even say it three or four times to the great annoyance of my wife. I might say three or four times during the show, wow, I'm hungry. You know, I'm hungry. But if I'm not willing to get off up my butt, right, and move myself to the fridge, I ain't hungry. You know what I mean? I might be saying I'm hungry. I might have an emotion, you know, that wants the leftover food. But ultimately, I'm prioritizing resting on the couch, right? If I were really hungry, I'd get up and move, right, to where the food is. Contrast that lighthearted example to a really serious one, to the places around the world where mothers walk with their kids miles and miles and miles through terrible terrain, terrible conditions to get to the humanitarian relief center so that they and their child can eat. See, that's hunger. See, we've never really known hunger, have we? Not, not real physical hunger. My kids say all the time, I'm starving. I'm like, no, you're not, but I do the same thing on the couch, you know? <laughs> Um, and so, so, listen, we don't really understand, but you see, that mother does going across the desert because this is, this is priority number one. The rest of her life has stopped 
so that she can get to the place where her child and her can find food. See, that's really hunger. Peter here has a genuine hunger for the Lord. Now notice the object of the hunger, because this is a mistake too. You can't judge someone's hunger purely by just how many hours they check off in church, right? You can't judge someone's hunger by how many religious things they do. The object of our hunger ought to be not church or religious activity. If that's the object of our hunger, that's idolatry. That's all well and good. But ultimately, the object of our hunger is Jesus himself. And we might say we're hungry for him. We might feel some kind of emotion when we're singing the beautiful songs that we sang this morning. But ultimately, our hunger is judged by our willingness to get to where Jesus is at, wherever he's at and wherever he's working. And guess what? I hope that many times he's working in here, but that's not always where he's working. So sometimes our hunger is demonstrated in what we do out there, where we partner with how he's moving in the world, where he's loving on people out there, when we go where Jesus is going. I want you to notice this about Peter. His hunger involves two things. First of all, he inconveniences himself, and then he changes his priorities. It's not convenient to swim with clothes on, right? It's not convenient. Chelsea's sister, I wasn't planning on sharing this story, but it's so funny. You just have to hear it. Chelsea's sister had this guy at college who loved, he just loved Chelsea's sister. And one day to impress her, I don't know what he was thinking, but he jumped fully clothed with these big boots on into a pond in front of her. They were swimming. And then it started to weigh him down. And Chelsea's sister was already so irritated at, at him. Um, but she, had, she was trained, right? She was, did she? Oh, no, she just was a hero. She had to save his life. <laughs> She had to go in and save his life, this guy, and then he was really in love with her, you know, because she had jumped in and saved. It was like, this is destined to be, all right? It's not convenient to jump into water with your clothes on, right? But this is what Peter does. His priorities change. I'm jumping in right now, and he inconveniences himself because when you're really, really hungry, those other things don't matter as much. We will change our priorities, and, and our willingness to embrace things that make us uncomfortable will change. But then look at Peter's humility. Um, I notice a few things in this passage about how he's humble. First of all, I love this, that he went back to being a fisherman. After, after Jesus was raised from the dead in this kind of in-between time, I love verse 3 in chapter 21. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. See, he had just spent three years with the Messiah, the promised one, preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, and you might, don't misunderstand it as a story where Jesus lifts him out of this lowly place and gives him this noble thing, and now there's things that are beneath Peter. Because obviously Peter doesn't think that at this point. You see, it's not that way in the kingdom. The more we get promoted in the kingdom, there's nothing that's beneath us in terms of tasks. You see? That's how it works in the kingdom of God. The higher you go up in the kingdom, whatever that means, the more you're willing to do anything. If somebody thinks that they're too high to do anything, it just speaks to their insecurity, not their anointing, right? Because true anointing will always evidence itself. It's like, look, I might, you know, God may have increased my power. He may have given me more responsibility. He may be letting me lead X, Y, and Z, but still I'm willing to clean the floors. Still I'm willing to go fishing. And Peter here 
you know, isn't tripping over himself. He knows in many ways he's just a simple fisherman. But then I especially see his humility when he answers Jesus the first time in verse 15. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What an odd question. Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, why is he framing the question that way? Well, because before Jesus' death, this is exactly what Peter claimed. He said boldly, brazenly in Matthew 26, 33, even if all fall away, he said this in front of the other disciples, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. It was Peter's way of saying, I am more devoted, more committed than anybody else. Well, now this is post-Peter's failure. He's been knocked down a couple of notches, realized he couldn't follow through. And so Jesus asks him, so Peter, do you love me more than these? And do you notice Peter doesn't really answer that question. All he says is, you know that I love you. See, a sign of pride is always that our spiritual life is framed in comparison with other people. Our tendency is to frame our spiritual life, its success or failure, in comparison with other people. And it happens both ways. You know, sometimes we think we're better than someone. I love you, Lord, more than these. Shame on them for not being as devoted as I am. But as often, we do it the other way. You know, we think to ourselves, well, that person is more devoted, more gifted, more committed, whatever. I could never be them. But both of those, whether you're comparing yourself and thinking you're above someone or you're below them, they both are fundamentally prideful because the focus of our spirituality is people, ourselves and others. But that has been shed from Peter in this point. It's just him and Jesus. And it's like Peter is saying, look, I can't, I can't speak for the other disciples, how much they love you or how much I love you in comparison to them. All that I can tell you is that to the best of my ability right now, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. That's a sign of humility that this comparison isn't happening anymore. So somehow, even in the midst of Peter's failure, which is instructive because it's really his sin that has brought him to this place, but in Peter's failure, this hunger and humility has been formed in him. That's really important because more than gifting and even calling, hunger and humility are the scaffolding on which what God gives us can actually be effective for the world and for the church. Without hunger, our gifting and calling lie latent. They just sit there, right? And like a child that is under-challenged in a classroom, Christians who grow bored in their faith because uh, they're letting their calling and their gifting lay latent, they will always get into trouble, right? Sin will always be crouching. It will always be right around the corner. Sometimes when I talk to people who are caught in sin, I can see the calling and the gifting that's on them, and it's like they're not even aware that it's there. And it's like, look, if you would just step into everything that God wants you to be, you might not feel so bored and have as much time to sin. But without humility... Our giftings and our callings grow destructive for ourselves and for the church. You know, gifting is an amazing thing because God will give it just out of his sovereign love. And so it's possible to be gifted in the Holy Spirit, but to lack in humility. And church, I'm telling you, these are the most dangerous people for the church. The most dangerous people for the church are highly gifted individuals that God has not revoked their gifting because he doesn't have to. He'll still use them. They are gifted, anointed people, 
but they lack in humility. For those individuals, for them and for the people around them, their gifting will actually become a curse and a burden. An Old Testament example of this is King Solomon, who was gifted extraordinarily by the Lord, but without humility, his giftings actually became the occasion for his sin. It actually became the point of his destruction. And so God is forging this into Peter, hunger and humility. And I love how Jesus responds. He responds, first of all, by giving Peter restored identity. You know, this whole thing about catching the fish, you know, this is the second time this miracle is happening. The first time it happened was when Jesus actually called Peter to follow him. There's a ton in this passage that would be causing Peter to remember past things that Jesus had done with him. So when Jesus says in 21.6 to throw the net at the right side of the boat and you'll find some, it would have reminded Peter of the past time, years ago now, when Jesus had told them to do the same thing and the same miracle happened. They caught all this fish. That time, in Matthew chapter 4 and in the other Gospels, Jesus had given them a calling. Jesus, after this miracle, said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus was calling out of them the identity that God had put into them. Because, and some of you know this, but your calling and your identity are linked together. You know, God created you for something. You know that, right? He created you for something. All of us. There's not one of us in this room. God doesn't create people, you know, without giving them a calling. I don't care who you are, young or old, but your calling is linked to who God made you to be. And Jesus, right away with Peter, starts to call it out of him. Now, I imagine that after Peter sinned and failed the Lord so greatly, it would have been easy for him to doubt whether that calling was true. But isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't skip a beat? What Jesus is saying is, your failures do not take away the calling that I've given you since birth. Your failings don't remove that from you. You see, our tendency is to think that our behavior is where we look to our calling, where we look for affirmation of our calling. But isn't it crazy? Our calling is actually deeper than our own behavior. It's like we can act in ways that are completely opposite from our calling. We've all done it. But it does not take away the calling that God has put on us. And this is why. Because God himself, in his love and mercy, has always reserved the right to name humanity. You see this in the book of Genesis. He gives the responsibility of naming the rest of the creation to humanity. Right? We're still doing it. I just read recently how many species were discovered this year that scientists are naming. We're still naming the creation all of these years later, discovering things about the universe and naming it. That's part of what God gave humanity when he gave us dominion over the earth. But the right to call humans what they are only belongs to God. Now, Satan wants it, but it only belongs to God. Created in God's image, male and female, he created them. God says, I will call men and women what they are. Because he doesn't want us getting that information from anywhere else. Trust me, the devil wants to give you his version of what your calling is, but it's a lie. You know, your behavior is going to want to give you, you know, a definition. And you better believe other people are going to want to give you a definition, right, of who you are. But you must never, listen, you and I must never attach our identity to the opinions of other people 
We must never attach our identity to our failings and our failures. We must never attach our identity to the things the enemy lies to us about. Our identity is attached forever, for eternity, to the will of a loving and gracious God. Amen? That's who he is for us. That's our identity in him. So he calls it out of Peter. You failed me three times. You're still this. You're a fisher of men. But then, I love this. Not only does he restore him to the place he was before, but Jesus now gives him expanded assignment. See, before the call was, I will make you fishers of men. But now three times, three times he says to Peter, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. See, the first calling was an evangelistic one about going out into the world um, to reach the lost, right? And this one is a pastoral calling to care for the church, to care for the disciples, to care for those who belong to Jesus. So I find this incredible because Jesus isn't just like restoring him to a previous level. He's actually giving him more assignment. He's actually giving him more identity. Theologians throughout the years have said that the first time Peter got a hook and the second time he got a crook, a shepherd's crook. Hook and a crook. Don't be mistook. He got a hook and a crook. Okay, <laughs> tell, tell me to stop. You want me to keep going? I can keep going. Okay. <laughs> he says this to him three times. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He expands his assignment. If the worship team could come forward. Listen, I hope this means something for you. Because don't, whatever you do in your Christian life, don't get caught in this cycle of your calling and identity being wrapped up on, in your behavior last week. There's, there's nothing that is more a joy sucker than trying to base our calling, our identity, our ministry on how we acted in the last few days. You know, I've been there before. It's miserable. You know, as, as a Protestant church, you know, we say we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the reality is many of us live in a cycle of penance. We sin and we think you know, we do all kinds of silly things. So many days have to pass by before I can really have communion with the Lord. You know, it doesn't have to be that way at all. You know, he loves you right in the midst of your family. He loves you right in the midst. When you were acting least like what your calling and identity is, he loves you right there. He still sees it. Your behavior doesn't fool him. It doesn't trick him. When you were hurting you know, and you just couldn't step into the calling and assignment God had for you, he sees you just the same. See, he knew you before you even came to be. He knew you in your mother's womb. Your calling and assignment was decided then by a sovereign God who knows beginning to end. And one thing about God's calling and the identity he gives us is you cannot run from it. Your sin cannot separate you from it. So, this is what I'm going to do just at the end. I hope it means something for you, but if I can, just for a few minutes here as we close, I just want to preach into the culture of Crestmont Alliance Church because I see some things in this passage that I think are valuable for us. First of all, what Jesus so values in Peter is hunger and humility. And this means that when we see what God starts to do in our midst, this ought to be what we value as well. And that's an important statement because 
it's easy to value and notice and celebrate the wrong thing. You know what I'm talking about? There's two that the New Testament specifically talks about, gifting and knowledge. It's easy to be impressed by those things and to say, oh, someone is gifted and they're knowledgeable or they're one or the other, so they deserve to be prominent in the church. But that's not the teaching of the New Testament. What the New Testament values the most, what Jesus values the most is hunger and humility. So listen, in our church, because we're welcoming the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not ashamed about that at all because it's in the Bible, I just want what God has. If it's God, I want it. Well, that means we accept all of the ways that God works. And it seems extraordinary to us sometimes, maybe because we're not used to it. It's not extraordinary to the New Testament. It might be extraordinary to us. But let me be clear. The Bible's so clear. You can prophesy wonders. You can speak and pray in other languages and have it interpreted, and you can know how to interpret that. You can be a worker of miracles. You can put your hands on the sick and see them recover. You can be powerful at casting out demons. And all of that is wonderful. But without humility and hunger, it doesn't mean a thing, church. It doesn't mean a thing. Someone can evidence all kinds of power, but without humility, which is another way to say without love, this is the point of 1 Corinthians 13, right? Without that, it doesn't mean anything. So I'm telling you, I'm committing before you today as one of your leaders that as a church, we will always value more hunger and humility than just being impressed by gifting and knowledge, right? We, we have to value and see the right thing. Give me a few hungry people who will change their priorities to be where Jesus wants to be, right? And they might not know that much and they might not be extraordinarily gifted, but I'm telling you, they'll change the world. How do I know that? Because these guys did, right? And in many ways, they weren't top tier. They were just hungry and humble, right? Secondly, Jesus restores identity. What this means is, Jesus provided a safe place for his disciples to fail in. And this is something that we need to do as a church as well. Be a safe place to fail. Now, what I'm not saying is, oh, we can just be flippant about failure. Like, oh, it's okay, you can sin, you can do whatever you want, and you can still be serving the Lord, and you know, and we don't really care. That's not what I'm saying, because that's not what Jesus did in this passage. He, he didn't just say, oh, Peter, whatever you denied me, who cares? You know, he said, come take a walk with me. You know, I'm sure it was uncomfortable for Peter, but it was safe. And listen, if you aren't ready for those kinds of talks with Jesus or those kinds of talks with the people around you who model Jesus to you, then you're probably not ready for great responsibility in the kingdom of God. There's not one of us that is past that point that, you know, I'm not above that. You know, any of you, you see failing in me, you see sin in me, I, I need to listen. And, and you do too. This is part of what it means to grow together. But on the other hand, we can't see someone fail or do something wrong or sinful or clunky and then define them by that failure and never see past it. Because Jesus was able to see past it. He was still able to see what Peter's calling was, even though he had messed up so badly. Sometimes we can be, some Christians in general, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about your neighbor. That's why I say in these times, so I'm 
that's close to home. Listen, sometimes we can be so judgmental of people who are first trying to love on people and the giftings that God has given them. You know, they teach, they evidence some manifestation of the Spirit, and if they don't do it just right, like we thought they should, we want to shut it down. And sometimes we don't just want to shut down their ministry, we want to shut it all down. Okay, we can't do that anymore, those gifts, you know? Hey, let's be a safe place for people to fail. Right, church? A safe place for people to grow. And lastly, Jesus gives expanded assignment. I just want to say this. It does not really take supernatural, spirit-empowered ability to just observe people's behavior and decide what they're good at. Corporate America does that all the time. They, they interview, they look at a resume, and they just fit people into slots. Now, we could do that as a church. Some churches do, right? We only recruit the best. You know, on our team, there's only going to be the most excellent. We might have a rock star church, but I think we'd have something less. And I wouldn't be able to serve here anymore. But I think, I think we'd have something less than what Jesus has, right? Because Jesus didn't pick the rock stars. He picked who God wanted him to have. He picked who God wanted him to have. I know that sometimes in my leadership, I have surprised people by the people I've picked to be with me by the people I've said, look, you have leadership potential. And when I see the surprise in other people, sometimes it makes me second guess myself, you know? Like, am I seeing too much? You know, am I just naive? But any day, I, I wanna have an environment where we are calling things out of people that they don't even know they have. You know what I'm saying? That's what takes supernatural ability. Our kids are downstairs right now. I wanna look them in the eyes. I wanna prophesy to them things that they don't even know exist, that they couldn't know exist, you know? I wanna call the best out of them. Now listen, that's a risk. Jesus had 11, he had 12. And at this point, he only has 11 because one didn't work out. And it was a risk at great cost. But I don't think Jesus had any regrets, any regrets at all, right? So that is what I want our culture to look like at Crossmont. I think it's what you want too, to be safe with each other, to be honest with each other, and to call the best out of each other.